As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible and open it up with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 will be in verses 29 through 32 today. Uh, I wonder how many of us in the room are facing a big decision, perhaps in the next couple weeks, the next couple months, maybe even the next year or two, you've got a big decision that is looming in your life right now. How many of y'all, I'm not going to ask you what it is, but how many of you think, I've I got a big decision that I'm going to have to make along the way? Okay, I see some of y'all are honest and most of y'all are not, but most of us have big decisions that we have to make. It may be what school I should go down, go to or what career path I'm going to choose or should I make a change in my career path. Sometimes we have to make big decisions in our parenting and the way that we relate with our children. There could be financial decisions that we have to make, uh, a big purchase that's on the horizon. You know, whenever you're in high school, you you generally say the smartest kids in the class are the ones who make the best grades. And so the ones that have straight A's, they're the smart kids. But once you get out of high school and you get into life, the smartest kids in the class are the ones who make the wisest decisions. Because ultimately, we arrive where we are in life due to the decisions that we make along the way. And decisions always have consequences. They will have consequences in your life, and they will also affect other people as well. And usually, the greatest consequences of our decisions are felt by the people that we love the most. And I'm amazed sometimes at how Christian people, those that come to church every week, will make a big decision in life without ever asking the question, what is God's will? What would God have me to do in this situation? I think sometimes we don't ask what is God's will because we know what it is and we don't really want to obey it. And sometimes we don't ask that question because no one's ever really taught us how to find the will of God. You know, Jesus is the most influential person that's ever lived. It's really undebatable. He's also the most polarizing person that's ever lived. The reason why is because of Jesus himself. He said words like we saw in Luke chapter 11, you're either for me or against me. He would say things to us like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's a lot of people within our culture that would like to embrace a neutral stance towards Jesus. They'll say, well, he was a great moralist. He was a good teacher. He's an incredible example of someone who really believed in his cause, even to the point of death. And so they want to take that neutral stance where they don't say anything bad about Jesus, yet they don't embrace him themselves. There are others that would like to take a neutral stance that says, well, Jesus is a spiritual teacher that taught himself as a path, to presented himself as a path to God, but there are many paths to God, and they all ultimately lead to the same direction. Jesus is just one of those possibilities. But Jesus himself is the problem with that line of thinking, because it was Jesus himself that presented himself exclusively as the way to God. Now, personally, if you're going to have spiritual truth, I would prefer that it be very narrow. I would prefer to know exactly, if I can know God, I would prefer to know exactly how I can know him. And Jesus said, you don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. 
You can know God, and ultimately in knowing God, you can know His will. And the way for you to know God and know His will is through me. In ancient days, when a person made big claims about God, the way that they backed up those claims were through signs. They were supposed to have a sign that would reveal that what they said about God was really true. And so when Jesus did these miracles... A lot of times the Gospels refer to them as signs. They were to point to the fact that Jesus is indeed God and that He was saying the truth. But in time, Jesus began getting annoyed with people. Now, it's never a good day when God gets annoyed with you. You don't really want to be in that position where you wake up and God's annoyed with you. You say, so, so what, did, what did God get Jesus get annoyed with? Well, He was annoyed that people would ignore his message and they just wanted the sign. Kind of like kids that, you know, you cook this nice meal for them and you work hard to make sure that they have a delicious, healthy, well-balanced meal and you present it to them and they're like, well, what's for dessert? They don't even care about the, the meal that you presented. And that's kind of what was happening with Jesus. People were just hydroplaning right over his message and they were like, well, let's get to the sign. Well, in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 16, we've been looking at that scene for several weeks now. It's a scene that is dripping with irony because Jesus had delivered a man that was moot and he was totally in the grip of evil. And Jesus had delivered this man from the evil spirit. No sooner had Jesus delivered him from that evil spirit than the man became a center of controversy because people began accusing Jesus of using demonic power to deliver the man from the demon. And so then they had the audacity to go to Jesus and say, Oh, Jesus, uh, if you delivered that guy through God's power, we demand a sign from heaven. And Jesus is like, Okay, let's think about this. Would Satan really deliver a demon from another person's body? That didn't make any sense. And that's where Jesus said the, the famous saying, a house divided against itself falls. Because it didn't make any sense that if he was using demonic power that he would deliver this man from the spirit of evil. It also, it also stood, stood to reason that, that what the sign that they were looking for had already been given to him. The man had been delivered. So the sign that they're asking Jesus for <laughs> was right on top of a sign that pointed to the fact that Jesus had power over all evil. So then we come to the passage that we're looking at today in verse 29. In verse 29, the Bible says, As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, This generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's proclamation. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now let me ask you a question. 
What in the world is Jesus trying to say here? This is one of those passages that you read and then you're kind of like, what was that? I'm not really sure exactly what Jesus is getting at here. So let's work through it together. In verse 29, he looks at his crowd and he says, you're an evil generation. Now, that probably really won a lot of friends for Jesus, didn't it? You know, looking at the crowd and says, basically, this generation here that stands in front of me, you guys are evil. You see, you know you've arrived at the house of evil whenever you begin to see bad as good and good as bad. And what drove Jesus to say this was the fact that the Son of God was in their midst and they were saying, he's the devil. Literally, they could not see the work of God for itself. They saw it as the work of evil. You know, modern philosophers will say that there's no such thing as an evil generation or an evil culture. They're only misunderstood, unenlightened. They need more knowledge, and then they won't be trapped in evil. But you can understand the heart of a culture when you see its values. And whenever a culture begins to celebrate the very things that God has condemned, you begin to realize that there is a core problem when a culture can become trapped in evil. So they said to Jesus, well, we want a sign. And Jesus says, I'll give you a sign, all right. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. You say, well, Lash, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, now you remember the story of Jonah and the what? The whale, right? Jonah the prophet, the Bible says in verse 30, For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah the prophet was told, Go to Nineveh. And Jonah said to God, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't like Nineveh. I don't like the people of Nineveh. I have no desire to go to Nineveh. And God said, you're supposed to go to Nineveh. So Jonah gets on a boat and he starts going the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. And God sends a storm. Eventually, the people in the boat decide, if we're going to live, we have to get this rebellious prophet out of the boat. And so they throw him overboard. And Jonah becomes fish food. By the way, the Bible doesn't say it was a whale. It says it was a big fish. And for three days and three nights, Jonah lives in the belly of the big fish. Well, eventually, the fish began to suffer from prophet poisoning. And his belly began to hurt. And so the fish threw up Jonah, and Jonah said, you know, maybe it's a good idea that I go to Nineveh after all. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a sign, and the sign that I give you will be the sign of Jonah. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be laid in the belly of the earth for three days, but the earth will not contain him. He will rise again, and he will say, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. I just overcame death. Hey, whenever you crucify someone publicly, you know for sure that they're dead. You put them in a tomb, and they're back alive again in three days. That's a pretty good sign that you need to listen to them, okay? And so this is the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about. Well, then in verse 31, he says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. So who is this queen of the south? Well, to understand what Jesus is talking about, 
you have to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Kings and chapter 10. In 1 Kings chapter 10, there was a queen from Africa, sometimes called the Queen of Sheba, or here, the Queen of the South. And she heard about the great King Solomon and the wisdom that he had. And so she journeyed from Africa with this massive entourage. And so 1 Kings presents it as this huge, ornate group of people that were coming to Israel to sit at the feet of Solomon. And the Queen of the South arrives at Solomon's courts and she peppers him with question after question after question. And Solomon responds to each question with godly wisdom. And then the queen of Sheba begins to look around at Solomon's court, and she sees the way that people are living their lives. She sees the joy that is in their soul. And God begins revealing himself to her and convicting her heart. And the Bible says that this queen from a pagan culture, who whenever she came into the presence of God, recognized it for what it was, and she praised the name of Yahweh. And Jesus is telling the crowd in front of him, there is someone more wise than Solomon standing right here. The Son of God is standing in front of you, and you all are people who have spent your entire life going to synagogue, going to temple, studying the scriptures, and you can't even see the Son of God right in front of you. Remember this queen from a pagan culture, whenever she found herself in the presence of God, she responded and knew that she was in the presence of God, and you're missing it. What a shame it is to have God's presence right in front of you, and you miss it. Well, in verse 32, Jesus continues. You may notice here, Jesus is kind of getting up in their face a little bit in this passage, okay? And so he continues, and he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's proclamation, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, Nineveh was kind of like the Vegas of Bible times, Nineveh was not known as a place of great virtue. In fact, Nineveh was known as exactly the opposite. And Jesus says, even the men of Nineveh, so trapped in their evil and trapped in their sin, when Jonah came to them and preached the message of God, they repented and heard it, and yet here you are, Israel, God's chosen people, the Son of God is here standing in front of you performing miracles and you call him Satan. What a shame. What a tragedy to have the Son of God live in your midst and miss it. Jesus says the very people that you look down your spiritual noses at can see God when he shows up. But as smart and as holy, as well-learned as you think you are, you can't even see the signs when they're right in front of you. What a tragedy. When you grow up in church all your life, you sit through sermon after sermon and you sing songs of praise, you volunteer at various activities and you have scriptures around your home, 
And yet you never really catch the message. You never really understand who Jesus Christ is. You ever, you ever say to God, God, if you'll give me just a sign, just, just give me a sign, and then I'll know what to do. Just show me. Show me. I've got this decision to make. I, I just need a sign. I think often we, we're looking for the beams of light coming through the window at night, or we're looking for the voice in the cloud saying, Paul Reed, sing this song kind of thing. And God can indeed do miracles. I don't want in any way discount God's ability to do miracles. The God of the Bible is the God of today. But you know, usually finding God's will is a matter of seeing what's in front of you through the lens of the Holy Spirit. Usually finding God's will for Christian people is simply being able to see through the spiritual eyes that the Holy Spirit guides us with. And so let me, for the next few minutes, give you three practical questions that you can ask whenever you are seeking God's will in a matter. Because I I realize this, that within this room, there are decisions to be made. There are people that need the direction of God in your life, and the decisions that you make are going to have consequences in your life, but not just in your life, the decisions that you make are going to have consequences in the lives of your children and the people in your community and the people that you love the most. And so the first question that a person can ask when they're seeking the will of God is, is it written? What has God already said about this in His Word? Has God spoken to this subject? Within our culture, one of the popular mantras is just go with your heart. Whatever feels right to you, whatever is your path, you just need to be true to yourself and go down that path. You'll see it in a lot of our cartoon movies and things like that, the importance of everybody just going down their own path and following their heart. Along with that comes the idea of, well, I ultimately uh, make my own rules. Nobody can judge me. Nobody tells me what to do and what not to do. And so I have to be captain of my own life. And God says to you and to me, I love you. I love you with all of my heart. And I have revealed my rules to you. Now, do you understand this? That the do's and don'ts of Scripture are not there to restrict your life. They're not there to hold you back and to keep you from being the person that, that you can be. When God says, don't do something or do this, God's holiness, God's commands are driven by His love for you. And so the first thing that we should ask ourselves whenever we're facing a big decision is, well, what does the Bible have to say? The Bible speaks to so many different subjects. You're dealing with a decision in your parenting. The Bible has a lot to say about parenting. Dealing with a decision in your marriage. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about marriage. You're wrestling with questions of sexual ethic and how should a person uh, live out their sexuality. The Bible has a tremendous amount to say about human sexuality and its purpose. 
And so often we are looking for signs and we're taking advice from all different directions where the first thing we should ask ourselves is, what has God said? What is written? But you have to come to the Word of God with the understanding that when God says don't do something, it's not that God is wanting to hurt you or hinder you. It's driven by His love for you. And how much pain could be avoided? How much regret could be avoided? How much backtracking we would not have to do if we simply would ask the question, what does the Bible say when we're making various decisions in life? You know, making a big decision in life without reading the Bible, it's kind of like uh, going on a hike without a map. It's kind of like teaching vacation Bible school without a curriculum, doing surgery with a plastic knife, being a vegan in a Texas barbecue restaurant. You know, it's just not going to go well. If you really want to find the will of God in your life, you need to ask yourself, what has God said clearly in the Word of God? Now, there's a second question you can ask. Is it wise? Is it written? Is it wise? Again, our generation says, just do what you want. And if you can't do what you want to do, just do what you can do. And whatever you have the ability, whatever you can do, just, just do what you can. Now, if you are a person that is atheistic or agnostic and you don't believe in God, then it would be wise for you to live for today because all you have is today. But godly people have much more than today. Godly people have a hope that lasts for all eternity. Godly people have a deeper meaning behind the purposes of our lives. And so a godly person needs to ask the question, not just what can I do, but what is the wise thing to do? What has God's Word said about this? And what does wisdom say about this? You say, now Lash, how am I going to find the wisdom of God? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible says, if any man lacks wisdom... He should ask God for that wisdom. It's in the book of James. Now you say, well, I'm kind of ashamed that I don't know the answer here. After all, I live in the Google generation. I'm supposed to know everything. Well, the Bible says that whenever you're lacking wisdom and you come to God seeking His direction, He's not going to laugh at you and scorn at you because of your shortcomings and your inability to know it all. In fact, He's going to gift you the Spirit of God so that you can begin seeing his direction in life. So one of the greatest ways that you can find the wisdom of God is to draw near to God in prayer. Now for a lot of folks, they say, okay, Lash, I have this big purchase to make in my life and I'm supposed to pray about it? I mean, what am I praying about? What exactly am I asking God for? Don't worry, I'll get it. What exactly am I asking God for? Uh... God, give me a lower interest rate. God, give me an extra million so that I can, I can do this. Well, in, in no way would I ever encourage you not to bring your prayer request to God. In fact, the Bible teaches us to bring the desires of our heart to God. But understand that there is a deeper element to prayer that involves you bending your will to God's Spirit 
And as you draw near to him, the wisdom of God begins shaping you and molding you so that your life comes into alignment with his will. And so when you're praying for God's direction and decisions within your life, frequently God will speak to you through the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. And you'll understand that God is directing your soul and guiding you towards a decision. God will also speak to us in wisdom through His people. It is important that in each of our lives, we have some go-to people that when we're facing a big decision, we can go to them and receive godly wisdom. Now, the key word here is godly, godly wisdom. There are a lot of people that are willing to give you advice. Have you ever noticed the people that will be the first ones in line to give you parenting advice are the ones whose kids are totally out of control themselves? (laughs) You know, there's a lot of people out there willing to give you advice. But what you need is you need some people in your life that can give you advice godly advice and bring godly wisdom to you. That's one of the reasons why church is so important. It is important for you to be a part of a church family where we have relationships that are not just uh, connected on the computer, but we have relationships that are real, face-to-face, with people that go through life with us. I encourage you Come to the worship service. The scriptures teach that we should not forsake the coming together of God's people in worship to God. Preaching and singing praises to God are things that the Bible commands us to do. You need to come to worship, but you also need to be a part of a life group so that you have other people that your life is connected to within the church that will be your friends that will be there for you during the good times and during the difficult times. You see, you can stay at home and you can listen to a better sermon than what you'll get here. You won't find better music, but you'll listen to uh, hear a better sermon than what you, you'll get here. You can read Christian books and all those things. They're, they're really good. But there's something about being a part of a church where we're family. And we walk through the journey together. And there's people that are here that when you're facing big decisions in life and you're going through difficult times, you can reach out to them and they can speak wisdom into your world. Is it written? Is it wise? Now here's what was ironic about our Bible story today. For generations, the scriptures had talked about the fact that the Messiah would come. Jesus' words were full of the wisdom of God. It was very clear that what Jesus was saying was the Word of God. For generations, people had lived and died waiting for the Messiah to come before Him. The Word of God had been fulfilled. The wisdom of God was on display. And the Son of God was here. And that's a third question you can ask. Is it here? Is it written Is it wise? Is it here? You know, as a kid growing up, I always thought that the will of God was some type of mysterious cloud that just kind of hovered over things, you know, and that it was very, very difficult to know. And I 
was taught by some folks along the way, and it really helped me that frequently finding the will of God in your life is a matter of seeing where God is at work and going there. It was Henry Blackaby, whenever he wrote a landmark book, Experiencing God, that was the premise of the book. God is at work, and whenever God is at work, you join Him in His work. And so you find where God is working, and you go that direction. You know, whenever we come to God and we say, Lord, uh, I want this, sometimes He says to us, okay, here you go. Sometimes He tells us no, and sometimes He says, you know, I desire to bring this to your life, but now's not the time. I don't like those. (laughs) I don't like it when God says no. I don't like it when God says, no, Lash, timing's not right. Now's now's not the moment. I'm bad at waiting. (laughs) How many else is bad at waiting? Anybody else bad at waiting? Yeah, I'm, I'm bad at it. But I've discovered that one of the secrets to waiting is finding something to do. If you're waiting for God to bring an opportunity to your life, busy yourself with the opportunities that He's already brought. Start doing what's already before you. And you'll find that before you know it, God will reveal to you the next chapter and the right time will arrive. You know, this week, there are going to be so many opportunities to see God at work and be a part of it. Boys and girls are going to come into this room. We're expecting a couple hundred boys and girls to the course this week. And those kids are precious to God. In a lot of their lives, God will have been revealing Himself to them. You know, kids grow up, and whenever they're a little bitty like my son Camden or Bennett's age, they start taking these little steps towards God and learning more about Him. And then they reach a point. It's different for every child. Sometimes it's as early as maybe six or seven. Sometimes it takes a little longer. But they start reaching this point where the gospel comes alive to them and They begin to understand their own personal need of salvation. I call that the age of responsibility when they get to that point where they're ready. They're ready to take that step of faith and embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. And think about this. There will be kids come into these doors this week who have reached that point in life. And will share the gospel with them. And they will pray to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And the Holy Spirit will come into their lives and they will come alive in Christ. And you have the opportunity, we have the opportunity of being there at that moment. There are other kids that will walk in this door that are taking those steps towards God. Or maybe they've already become Christians and throughout the course of this week, you will be able to help them develop a biblical outlook and begin to live their life beyond selfishness. And think about how can their life be connected to what God is doing. God is at work in their lives and we as a church have an opportunity to be a part of that. And my prayer is that when God shows up, we don't miss it. What an absolute tragedy that Jesus was standing in the midst of these people that had been waiting for the word of God to be fulfilled in their lives and here is the son of God and they see him as evil they missed it 
And I pray that we will not miss God at work in our lives and in our church. Jesus Christ always demands of us a decision. And my guess is that there's a lot of people in this room that have big decisions to make. And God's answer is often right in front of you. What needs to happen is your spirit needs to come into alignment with the Spirit of God so that you can be obedient to what God is calling you to do. I do know this for certain. There is a specific answer to the spiritual darkness of this world. There is a specific answer to the restlessness that causes so many to stay up at night with their questions about God. And that answer is Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave us guessing. He says, you want to know God? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You come through me. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads as we come to a time of commitment? Perhaps this is your moment of decision. Perhaps this is the moment where you decide to place your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If that's where you are right now, if this is your moment, I would invite you to call out to God. Say, Lash, well, what do I say? You may say something like this right where you are. Just call out to God and say, God, I have done things that are sin. And I ask your forgiveness. This morning I take a step of faith and I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I am trusting in Him as my Savior, as my Lord. And through Your power, I commit my life to follow You from this day forward. Lord, save me. I pray that this will be my moment, my moment of salvation. If this is your moment where you place your faith in Christ, I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I would like to be a pastor to you. I would like the opportunity to talk to you more about it. But I would just invite you to do something right now. Just look up at me until I can make eye contact with you. This is my moment of salvation today, Pastor. Just look up at me until I can make eye contact with you. Praise God. Anybody else? I'd love to visit with you more about what it means to be a believer. I know there's others in the room today that you've got some big decisions ahead of you. I pray you'll find direction from God's Word. You'll find wisdom through God's Spirit. And that you'll find God's perfect timing in your life. Because He's writing a great story for you. He's at work. And He wants your life to be a part of His story. Father, help us to be your people in all that we say and do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.